Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 we'll be looking at today. It's nice to be back here, to be back in the pulpit today, and uh, after a three-week three-week sabbatical of sorts, and just as I come back, I'm just uh, very aware of God's grace, very thankful for God's grace in the form of other men who can teach and lead, uh, like Phil, who served us so well last Sunday, and, and the different brothers from our family of churches who came and served us the previous two weeks as well. Uh, God is so good to care for us, really, through these different means of grace, these, these people who have served us. And I'm so glad to be part of a family of churches uh, to get this sort of care and cooperation um, that, that is so helpful, such a blessing. I'm aware of God's grace through those means, but also just aware of the wonderful means of grace of the Word of God. And so we are going to be looking to the Lord once again, looking to His Word, looking uh, in this Acts series to hear from Him again, to be instructed as we go through Acts, and and, um, we can expect God to speak to us. It's really an amazing thing to think we come together on Sundays to hear the living, eternal, infinite God speak to us. I don't want us to ever take that for granted in in our desire to hear Him and what it means to hear Him. It is, a, uh, it is quite amazing. And, uh, and I know for me often it, it makes me tremble. Uh, but he's good and gracious. So let's go before him and ask him to work, ask him to speak, and transform our lives for his glory. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you're good. You're only good. You're purely good. And what you want for our lives is the very best. And Lord, we learn what you want for our lives through your word as you speak to us, Lord. We thank you. So would you come and speak, Lord? We we recognize we have no right in and of ourselves. We have no ability in and of ourselves to come before you, the eternal, holy Glorious God, but you have sent your Son, and He has lived the perfect life, shed His blood for us amazingly, and then risen from the dead, bringing eternal life to all who trust in Him. We thank you for that, Jesus, and because of you, Lord Jesus, we can pray and we can approach the throne. So, Father, would you come and speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you illumine the Word of God to us. Show us Your glory. Lead us in Your glorious ways, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 6. We'll be in verses 1 through 7. We're following this glorious storyline as God pours out, has poured out His Spirit on His people formed the New Testament church, called them to be witnesses in the power of the Spirit to the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ under the sovereignty of God. 
And the storyline is just amazing what happens uh, in, in this early church. Uh, so many uh, amazing things as God works in ways that are unique, but ways that are also transferable for any church. So we arrive at chapter 6, a transition point from the early church as it starts to, as it grows and flourishes, and then as it starts to go outward to the world. And in this transition point is this key section in verses 1 through 7. And it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the words. And when they said what, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. They set these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 6, 1 through 7. These seven verses do serve as a transition point. And what we've been following so far has been the life of the church in Jerusalem, as they've experienced the Spirit, as the Gospel has produced fruit, as God has sovereignly led them. And we've seen them facing different difficulties as well in in the church. And what is beginning to happen here as the story goes on is Luke is transitioning to what happens as the Gospel starts in a very very powerful and significant way, starts to go out beyond this Jerusalem church. And so these seven verses in some ways are an introduction to some of the key characters in that transition. They're, they're an introduction to, in particular, Stephen and Philip. And I know while I was gone, we jumped ahead a little bit to chapter 8, didn't we? And you heard about Philip. And we learned from Philip, uh, from his life and his, his work as an evangelist. So he is a key figure as well. And, and Stephen and Philip are key in the transition of the gospel from uh, just Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the Gentiles and the end of the earth. So this is a transition section, but, but it's not just that. It's not just a, a way that Luke said, well, you know, how do I, I gotta, gotta move the story along, you know, and I got these guys, Stephen and Philip, coming up, so how am I gonna introduce them? So we'll just kind of throw this throwaway story in here, you know, to introduce Stephen and Philip. No, it's more than that. God doesn't waste his words, because even as Luke thought through those things, and maybe he even thought the very thing, I doubt it, but, But even so, God is over that. God breathed his word through Luke. And God doesn't waste words. So we do get introduced to Stephen and and Philip here, but we also learn so much from these seven short verses. This particular incident is very important in the life of the church in Jerusalem. And the truths here are very important in the life of the church in Haverhill, in particular the King of Grace Church in 2010. 
What's going on here is really another effort. I would, I would think, though not explicitly mentioned, I think the devil's at work here trying to bring harm to the church. He, he tried first persecution from without, and we saw how that uh, was responded to, that they remained faithful. They kept their eyes on the Lord. They were living for something eternal, for that eternal reward. So they stayed faithful and continued to preach, and there continued to be fruit. So persecution didn't work. So he tried corruption from within, and God was over his church, protecting his church, and that didn't work. Now, in these seven verses... It looks like he's trying to confuse leadership priorities and bring disunity, allow disunity to continue and the eventual destruction that, that would result from it. But once again, we see in, the, in these verses our God at work, the sovereign God using leaders and using the church to bring a solution to a problem that could have been destructive, could have destroyed the Jerusalem church. And that's one of the key lessons in Acts is just how our God is sovereign how he cares for his church, how the gospel is powerful, the spirit is active as we look to him. So what we're going to do is just study this incident and learn from it to, to understand what went on and then to think about how that applies to us. So there's four things I want to talk about, and I think you have notes in your bulletin to follow along if that helps. We're going to look at the problem, what was going on. We're going to look at the principles that were at stake in this problem. We're going to look at the plan that they followed, then we're going to talk about the prosperity that resulted. So sorry for the alliteration. It helps me at least. Problem, principles, plan, and prosperity. Problems, principles, plan, and prosperity. So first, the problem. It starts out saying, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. That's how it starts out. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists Arose. Isn't it interesting how Luke introduces the section? In these days, the disciples were increasing in number. Where's the problem with that? The, the, the church is growing. The, the disciples are increasing. There's diverse Christians coming to this church. It's growing. There are more disciples. Isn't it a good thing to have more disciples? Why, why the problem? Aren't more disciples good? Don't we want more disciples as a church? Don't we want to see more people come to Christ? More people established in Christ, growing and thriving? Don't we want to see that? How could, how could there ever be a problem with growth? With seeing disciples added and established and growing? That, that's a good thing, right? Isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's how it starts out. There's this good thing going on. But, but there's a principle that we have to get that's, that's here, that's implicit in what's going on. And I think Proverbs 14.4 says it best. I think we have this to show. There's a principle here. I don't know if you know this verse, but it says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. You might be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? But I'm sure right now those who work with horses and farm animals know exactly what this verse is talking about. If you don't have an oxen, the manger, the the stall is nice and clean, right? But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. If If you don't have an ox, things are nice and clean. If you have an ox, you've got a problem, don't you? Oxes... I've never actually I've been around oxes, but not a whole lot. Oxes, I know, they stink. Farm animals stink. They stink, and they produce in prodigious amounts solid stink. <laughs> and somebody has to clean up the solid stink. 
And somebody has to clean the stall. And when there's no oxen, yeah, the stall is clean. But the oxen provide for abundant crops. The oxen provide for abundant crops. You can keep your barn neat and tidy by getting rid of the stinky, messy animals, but you don't get any crops when you do that. You can make your church nice and orderly and comfortable by getting rid of the people that make you uncomfortable. And you can do that, you can do that unconsciously even. But there's no harvest. There's no harvest. There's, there's no, well, I don't want to say there's no reward, but you greatly diminish your reward. If our agenda is to keep the manger nice, neat, and tidy, if our agenda is to keep King of Grace nice and orderly like it used to be in the old days, we miss God's purposes. Yeah, it's nice and neat and tidy, maybe. Well, it's not going to stay that way, but it seems like that. But there's no harvest. There's no, there's no crops that come in. We diminish our reward. So growth for the kingdom means getting messy for the kingdom. Growth for the church means getting messes. Messy. There are messes. There are messes to clean up if we're going to see growth. And that's what Jerusalem was experiencing. There was growth. It was good. But it was messy. It was messy. It was messy because in this case we had two very different groups of people. And I'm sure there are more than just two different groups of people. If you get two, any two people together, you've got differences already. But there were these two groups of people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And, and they all were Jews at this stage, because if you follow the storyline, we know they all were Jews. Um, but there were Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew-speaking, Jew, Hebrew Hebrew-culture Jews. So there, there were, the Hellenists were Jews that spoke Greek. That was their prime language. And they probably didn't know a whole lot of Hebrew. Uh, historically, we know that there were separate synagogues in Jerusalem for the Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers, just because if you don't speak Hebrew and you go to Hebrew worship, you know, you're lost. So, so there were these Greek-speaking synagogues uh, because there were many Jews that were from outside of, they probably weren't native to Jerusalem or had grown up outside and didn't speak good Hebrew. They spoke Greek mainly. Then there were those that probably had grown up in Palestine in that area, and they spoke good Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. would have been their family normal speech, but they also would have spoken Greek. But they could speak Hebrew well. And not only did they speak different languages, but most likely they had different cultures too. That the Hebrews were more traditional. Uh, the Hebrew-speaking Jews were more traditional Jews, more culturally like the, like the older Jews. The, the Hellenistic Jews were probably greatly influenced by Greek culture. Now, they still were good Jews. I'm not saying that they were Greeks in the full way. But they probably were very culturally Greek. They liked Greek music. They liked Greek food. And, and they, they liked Greek culture. So there was a, a difference here. There was a language barrier to some extent. And there was a significant cultural barrier. There were differences. And it's interesting, just a side note too, here, that, that no part of the solution here involved forming two separate churches. There's nothing here mentioned. And just to, it, I don't want to just take away from this entirely, but a lot of church growth experts will say, you know, the best thing to do is just form two churches, the, the Hebrew and the Hellenist, and everybody's happy. But it's interesting, the storyline has nothing like that. And I think because uh, it didn't enter their mind, because I don't think it enters God's mind, really. When God looks at his church, he wants to see diversity and unity in the gospel. Yeah, there are realities we need to deal with, language barriers, things like that. Uh, but he wants to bring people together. It's interesting. There's nothing in the solution about separating, about segregation. It's, it's, it's about bringing them back together. 
God wants a people that are so affected by the gospel that, that if not for the gospel, if not for the gospel, they would not have anything to do with each other. But because of the gospel, people who are diverse and, and, and from very different backgrounds become inseparable friends in Christ. The kingdom of God has no room for cliques, no room for socioeconomic stratification, no room for segregation. And I know that's your heart. I'm so glad that you get to be in a church that has that heart to bring together diverse folks, to love each other in Christ and learn from each other, magnify Christ together. That was God's heart, I believe, for the Jerusalem church. And it wasn't happening at this point. It looks like uh, something was going wrong, at least we know, at least we know that there was a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And uh, if you think about it, this is a serious problem. Even if there weren't a cultural divide, just the fact that widows were being neglected is not a good thing. You don't want hungry widows. That's, that's not a good thing for the church. They're taking care of these widows. Uh, there's probably hundreds of them being biblically responsible for the poor and the widows among them. And something's happened. They're getting neglected, it appears. And there's hungry widows. Um, I don't want my grandmother going hungry, all right? And, and so when my grandmother goes hungry, I feel that. And that's the sort of situation going on in the church, that these uh, widows apparently were going hungry, were getting neglected. Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't imagine the Hebrews had any conspiracy or plan to do that. It was probably just cultural barriers, language barriers, and just other things. Lack of some, the right gifted people to take care of them. But there was a problem, and there was a, there was a complaint from the Hellenists towards the Hebrews. And the word is complaint. It's not, a, not a, an appeal. It's not a critique. It's a complaint. It's the same word used for murmuring or grumbling. So it's not a good thing. It had gone beyond just, hey guys, I just wanted to make you aware that you know, there's a hundred grandmothers that speak Greek that haven't eaten in two days. Uh, so maybe we need to do something. No, it was murmuring. It was this sort of like, like hey, did you hear like, what happened to this woman's grandmother? It was murmuring. It was the idea that it was quiet. It was semi-concealed. It wasn't an appeal. It wasn't looking for resolution. It was just complaining one to another in a semi-secret way. And murmuring is, is not a good thing. Murmuring is not a good thing. Murmuring campaigns are very harmful to the people of God. And you can look in the Bible and from the people of God in Israel through the Bible, we look in Corinth and elsewhere, murmuring is a dangerous and harmful thing. Philippi 2, it appeared to be going on. It is destructive. And it's not the, the issue in this is not that there was a concern. There was a concern. It was a legitimate concern. It needed to be dealt with. There's, there's nothing wrong with addressing the concern and dealing with the concern. The problem is with how they handled the concern. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? When there's a concern. And there's always going to be concerns. There's always going to be things we don't take care of properly. We fall short on. There's always going to be concerns. It's, it's so important, though, how we handle that concern. And apparently in Jerusalem, they were not handling, at least the Hellenists, by and large, were not handling it well. They were murmuring, and things weren't going well. And for us as a church, oh, we, we need to take this seriously, and I know you guys do. 
We are committed to aggressively, biblically, and corporately together dealing with any concern. And I want you to know that as, as a leader here, uh, we don't want you to ever hesitate to bring your concerns. I have an open-door policy. Our leaders, we, are, we seek to be learners. Uh, we want to do all we can to make it as easy as possible to bring any concern. Because, because we believe that God uses the church to take care of the church and God's purposes. He doesn't merely use, it's not, never to be an us and them leaders in the congregation. We together are to address what God's doing. We need input. So we, we are committed to aggressively, biblically, corporately going after any concerns and rejecting and refusing to murmur, to talk about them on the side with those that can't solve it. Because we know how dangerous it is and we know how good it is when we do it right. We know how, how fruitful and how glorifying to God it is when we do it right. So, so we actually uh, have a document that we have in our membership material uh, that talks about redemptive speech. And it's really our commitment. Just, it's just a distillation of biblical teaching, but it's our commitment to redemptive speech. If you want to read more about that, you, there are some copies actually at the back, and you can grab one of those copies. If you're a member, you have it in your membership material already. But we really want to address concerns in a, a godly biblical way. And it's sad... It's sad to look at the Jerusalem church and see this. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. But there's a good side here, isn't there? Isn't it glorious to see how it was dealt with? It's glorious to see how they dealt with it, that the leaders did not say, Guys, don't you know that this is so bad? You're not supposed to murmur, so shut up and forget the whole problem and move on. Come on. It's free fruit anyhow. Why are you complaining? It's free. How can you complain about free stuff? They didn't do that, did they? They didn't, they didn't try to squelch them. They didn't lash out. How dare you insult my leadership? There was nothing like that. They saw the issue. They saw the implications. They avoided lashing out. They avoid, avoided you know, blame. They didn't say, well, it's not us. It's the guys that carry the boxes around. Those dummies, they don't speak any Greek. So that's their fault. Blame them. They didn't do that. They wanted to solve the problem. They wanted to come humbly. They had been with Jesus. And they were different sort of people. They wanted to preserve the unity of the church. They wanted to address the problem. And so they used their leadership to draw the church together, not to separate the church. And together the church came together and brought a solution that was wonderful and resulted in great prosperity. So that's the problem. Let's look at the principles that, uh, that influenced the, the apostles as they thought through this, and the church as they thought through this, that this was a significant problem. And, and probably at the top of the list, one of the things at the top of the list was the threat to the unity of the church. The threat to the unity of the church. God takes very seriously the unity of His church. God is one. He wants His people to be one. He wants every local church to be united in oneness. And we see these exhortations in Scripture. Uh, Paul, in a couple places, talks about And I could go other places, too. I, I was just reading uh, Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. What a great psalm. Like oil on the, on the beard of Aaron. Like the anointing and the presence of God setting apart His people for His glorious purposes. In his presence, like the dew on Mount Hermon, the, the fruitfulness, the, the watering of the land for a good harvest. Unity is a blessing. 
It is a good thing. How good. How good and pleasant it is. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in Philippians, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. God loves unity. He loves for His people to be together to be united in purpose, to be humble before one another. And it doesn't mean to have the same opinion about everything. It's a heart orientation. I am for you. We are united in Christ. We are together under the Lord. There's a unity that He desires. This principle of unity is worth the best efforts of any leader. The apostles knew this. They also knew that this was a leadership problem. It was a congregational problem, but it was a leadership problem as well. They knew that God had called them to be diligent shepherds. Scripture, scripture never promotes the notion that anarchy is positive. Anarchy, right? The whole idea of no structure. Um, Scripture never promotes it as positive, always as negative, always as a reflection of God disciplining His people, stepping back and allowing them not to have solid leaders. Scripture always is favorable about godly leadership. So this is a leadership issue. And, I, and, and uh, just as I thought through this, you know, I'm, I, I don't feel, from my, part of my own journey, I'm not a... I don't think I'm a strong hierarchical type guy. I, I tend to be like I'm content in the crowd. If you see me in social situations, I'm not the center of attention. I'm not the social uh, butterfly type. I just kind of like being with the crowd and kind of letting things go and stuff. As long as, there's, as long as we're going in an okay direction, I'm, just, I'm fine being a wallflower. But I've realized that God is not an anarchist, that God calls leaders to lead. He calls people to step up and serve His body. And I recognize that for me, it would be lazy and comfortable to just step back. But God's called me to lead His precious people. And, and that He uses leadership for good. And not just my leadership, the leadership of others in our church and elsewhere. He uses leadership for good. And so I'm called to lead. And so this, the apostles understood that. Leadership is a good thing. And that, the reality is there's never, there's never any such thing as anarchists. Anarchy, by the way. Side thing. Have you ever noticed that the anarchists who protest at the different World Leaders Conference are very well organized? <laughs> if you try for anarchy, what's going to happen is, is the, somebody's going to uh, percolate up and be a leader. And most likely it's going to be an unqualified leader. So if we're not diligent and, and purposeful in how we do leadership will end up with default leadership, which is usually not good leadership. God wants to use leaders to serve His church. And so they understood that this was a leadership problem, so they knew they needed to do something. They couldn't just say, well, you know, let's just let the congregation hash it out, you know? Just, I mean, boy, let's just get the Hellenists and the Hebrews together in one room and just hash it out, you know? And we'll just kind of say, hey, guys, there's a problem. Let's see where it goes. They didn't, didn't do that. They did get the Hellenists and the Hebrews together in one room, and they said, guys, these are the biblical priorities, and this is what I, we propose. What do you think? 
They brought leadership to it. And part of the solution for them was not only to be active as leaders, but to implement better leadership, to, to bring in another tier of leadership that was lacking to go after the problem. So it's the problem and the plan included leadership. And it included keeping biblical priorities for leadership, to understand that there were priorities. There is a call of God, and leaders are called to serve certain ways, and certain leaders are called to serve certain ways. There are priorities that are really important. And think about it, you know, at, at what's going on. I mean, if it were our church, widows are going hungry in the church. This is a bad stuff. Widows are going hungry. People are grumbling. A church split of the first church is, is imminent. It's on their doorstep. And, and they would be tempted, I would think, to think, oh, no, oh, no, drop everything. Drop everything. We've got to go and put out this fire. You know, let's just, and, the, and the disciples the apostles just pick up the bread boxes. Come on, guys. We're going to start going through the city and making sure everybody gets the bread distribution. Let's get on this thing. That would be tempting to do. But did they, did they, did they do that? <laughs> Porky pig. Uh, They didn't do that. They recognized their priorities. They recognized what they were called to do. They were called to minister the Word and not be distracted from that. The Word is so important for the church that it must not be neglected for other important things. This is important. Widows being fed, the unity of the church, that's all really important. But it isn't so important that it it displaces the ministry of the Word. And they realize, you know what, we cannot respond to this in a way where we diminish this high priority of the Word. The Word being... The word being sown to God's people, the word being sown to the community is, is the highest priority of God's leaders and the church in terms of fruitfulness. The word has and makes all the difference. Just look through history. Look through the word. What, what does the church of Antioch, the church of Jerusalem, what does the missionary work of Patrick, the leader of Chrysostom, the Waldensians, and Wycliffe have in common? What, are, what is the ministry of Luther and Calvin, the fruitfulness of these people, Knox, Bunyan, Edwards, Whitfield, Moody, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, all, all throughout history, Swindoll, Piper Sproul, Keller, MacArthur, what do they all have in common, these fruitful ministries? the proclamation, the effective preaching of the Word. So it must not be neglected. And they understood that. John MacArthur says about this, You show me a church where there is a strong biblical preaching and teaching, and I will show you strong people and strong ministry. You show me a church where there is weak biblical preaching, and I will show you a church with weak people and weak ministry. That's just how it goes, because the Word of God is the food that makes believers mature and strong. And the apostles knew this. They knew it would be wrong to neglect. They said it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Nothing wrong with serving tables. And this was more than just serving tables. That was a way to encapsulate the entire ministry. Nothing wrong with that. But it would be wrong for them to do it. It would be wrong because it would diminish their ability to minister the Word and see fruitfulness and see God glorified. It would be wrong because it also would diminish the body's ability to do what the body's called to do because the the apostles were not called to be the body. They were called to equip the body and do the work of evangelists. The body was called to be the body. And they did not want to obstruct the body's priorities as well. Now this particular instance is, is... instructive to us. It is analogous to other sections of Scripture. In this instance, we have the apostles and their ministry of the Word, and we have the second tier of leadership that comes in. And, and 
And these, this tier of leadership comes in to support the apostles so that they're freed up to minister the word. It is significant ministry they're called to. The, and, and it's analogous really to pastors and deacons. It's not, it, it may mean that. I don't know if Luke and God meant this to be a direct correlation. But regardless, it's instructive to us. That this is the same sort of issue and, and that's worked out in the reality of what pastors are called to, to equip the saints to minister the Word, and what deacons are called to do to help implement the Word in practice. John Stott has a great quote here as he speaks, as he comments on this section. He says, The apostles were not too busy for ministry, but preoccupied with the wrong ministry, as they were tempted to go into distributing foods. So are many pastors. Instead of concentrating on the ministry of the Word, which will include preaching to the congregation, counseling individuals, and training groups, they became overwhelmed with administration. The consequences are disastrous. The standards of preaching and teaching decline, since the pastor has little time to study or pray. And the lay people do not exercise their God-given roles, since the pastor does everything himself. For both reasons, the congregation is inhibited from growing into maturity in Christ. What is needed is the basic biblical recognition that God calls different men and women to different ministries. Then the people will ensure that their pastor or pastors are set free from unnecessary administration in order to give himself to the ministry of the word. And the pastor will ensure that the people discover their gifts and develop ministries appropriate to them. There are biblical priorities for a church, for leaders. Apostles, as they implement this plan, understood this, brought great wisdom for us to learn from. So what did they do? What was the plan? How did they respond to these, this problem with these principles? Well, it's really instructive to watch how they operate. Great wisdom. First, they shared the burden with the church. They shared the burden with the church. They brought the church in to the need. This was a significant need, a significant problem. And they didn't just come up with a plan on their own and say, okay, guys, hey, we've got a new program going here, and uh, you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and we're going to get this solved. Now, they could have done that. They were apostles. I mean, they had great authority. They were, they were unique in their authority, but they didn't do that. They shared the burden with the church. They communicated to the whole church. They sought to work together. They invited the church in to their burden and the need. They didn't operate unilaterally, one-sided, only doing it themselves, isolated from the body, but as part of the body. Certainly if the apostles did that, any leadership in the church today should understand major problems must be dealt with the same way. We do it together. We, we share it together. Leaders bring this. And I'm so glad that I, I know for us as a church, this is my commitment. I know you guys operate this way too. And, and just as I thought through this, I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a planned family meeting we're having in September. Uh, and we're going to, at our family meeting, talk about uh, what God's doing in our church. So uh, you want to mark your calendars, if you can, tentatively, for September 12th on Sunday in the afternoon or evening, um, thinking probably after dinner time, early evening, to get together and talk about what God's doing in our church. Uh, talk about some things we're trusting God for for next year. We want to talk about our budget. Uh, I, uh, in some ways, due to lack of administrative gifts and help, <laughs> we haven't done this in a while, and I want to make sure we do this regularly. So we'll have time to come together and talk about these things. We want to hear from you guys. We want to talk together. We want to do these things together. 
And we want to, we want to talk about our budget and, and the broad categories and hear from you, the thoughts and learn. And then have a chance to, to uh, hear from you formally, too. So we'll be providing some sort of feedback form just for you guys to fill out, give, give further input. And, and then, uh, if appropriate, to affirm that, that yes, we believe this, God's calling us to this, and here we go. So uh, we want to we operate that way. It's our commitment to do it, both through family meetings and just how we do life together as a church, following this example, working together to walk together in the Lord, to address problems, to see God's solution. So they invited the church into the burden, into the need, and then they, they shared the principle that they need to be committed to the Word, and they, they, they sought to delegate the responsibilities of the church. They sought to get, delegate uh, non-Word, not directly related to the preaching of the Word type leadership responsibilities to others. They sought to delegate it to qualified leaders, not just anybody. They wanted qualified leaders. So they shared their burden, and they said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, seven men who have a good reputation, who will represent Christ and his church well. They need to have a good reputation. Now, these sort of qualifications we see mirrored in, in uh, 1 Timothy as well, where it's calling for deacons. So some think that these are the first deacons, and they very well may have been. Seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They need to be full of the Spirit. They need to be godly men. Good reputation, godly men, and they need to have wisdom. They need to be gifted men. So it's not enough to be reputable and godly. They have to be gifted for this sort of leadership, for diaconal type leadership. They need to be able to have the skills to interact with people. It's interesting to note, too, Now I, I respectfully understand and disagree with those who say a deacon's job is the physical needs of the church. Yes, I think that's part of it, but it's more than that. There's, there's really not the requirement to be full of the spirit and wisdom to, to, to necessarily to, do, to mow the grass and to paint the building um, in a church or to distribute the boxes. These guys are being called to oversee the care of the widows in the church. And so they're probably unlikely to be the guys with the boxes in their hands going door to door, the baskets, whatever it would have been. They're the men who are overseeing the care, making sure that the biblical principle of caring for the poor and the widows is wisely implemented in the church. So deacons, I believe, and and others are in agreement, deacons are called to more than just the physical care. They're called to, to really the spiritual care that is the implementing of the Word of God. They're called to help implement the Word in the church. Again, quoting from John MacArthur, who speaks of this, he says, While deacons are to be as godly as elders, they differ from them in the terms of their ability to teach. The authority of pastors and elders is based on their proclamation and exposition of God's word. Yet right alongside the elders, and in our passage, right alongside the apostles, come those who implement what's been taught and whose lives are no less godly than theirs. Deacons are to seem to raise the congregation to the highest level of spiritual virtue, not to set themselves apart as abnormally pious people whom the congregation could never expect to imitate. They are, they are to be examples, encouraging others, and to help implement the words. That's what these men are called to, and that's what deacons are called to, and that's what the deacons in our church are called to do. So the congregation suggests the candidates. They know some among them that are 
of good repute and filled with spirit and, and wise, and, and they bring them to the apostles. The apostles review and approve and appoint them and commission them, and they start serving. And what a glorious picture. What a glorious picture of, of a healthy church operating, dealing with a significant problem. And what a, what a model for us to follow. What a wonderful solution to what, what could have been a devastating problem. These sort of problems destroy churches. If we don't operate biblically in response to these sort of problems, it can destroy us. But here we have what a, a, a wonderful example of a godly and wise biblical response to a significant problem. And a wonderful result as well. We, we as a church seek to operate these ways. We understand that, that, that pastors and elders are called to minister the word, to equip that the churches to do the ministry, that deacons help implement the ministry. So I'm so grateful as a church for our deacons. And I am so grateful for those that are uh, up-and-coming deacons too. And we are, as a church, looking to grow and to add more deacons, those that come and help. Uh, right now we have uh, three deacons. I hope to add more and I also hope to add, for us to add more elders. My prayer is that God would raise up a team of elders. Uh, because not only do we need deacons, but elders need to be together with other elders as a team operating. And, and, and um, I'm glad for God's at work. And he, he is at work. We're looking at different men, considering what God would do, and look forward to what, he'll, what He's going to do. Ultimately, God is the one who provides the grace for leaders. We don't create leaders. God's grace creates leaders. We recognize leaders. We help develop those re- leaders. And when they're ready and qualified, we, we appoint and affirm those leaders and we commission them to do what they're called to do. Thank God for the leaders that God has given us. Well, we see the results here in Jerusalem. The prosperity that results at the end. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, guess what happens when you release the apostles to minister the word? The word increases. And guess what happens when the word increases? It produces fruit. Disciples are multiplied. And the the ending phrase, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests were unlikely people to come to Christ. So Luke, I think, is saying that as the apostles were released by the deacon-type leaders doing their thing, the word increased, it caused more disciples, and it even did things like winning priests to the faith. A, a wonderful testimony of the fruitfulness of the word as these men are released. And I, 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 want, to see, I want to see the unlikely come to King of Grace. I want to see the unlikely. The, the priests were the unlikely. I want to see... The, the folks that we may not expect to respond to Christ come to Christ through our church because of the ministry of the Word. There are just, there are just, there's just so many things I'd love to do. And there's so many people out there who don't have an opportunity to hear the Gospel who would come here to hear it. So Eddie mentioned Alpha. I want to do Alpha. I want to do more with Alpha. Uh, another thing I've been thinking about, it's been on my heart, and I had uh, talked with others about it, talked with Andy Doyle, who God took back to England, so we're wondering what we're going to do, but uh, doing a Christian recovery ministry, because there's a lot of folks out there who are, who are captive 
to addictions, drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, food. And they need a place where they can find freedom in Christ. They need a ministry that's focused on Christ and the power of the gospel to set them free. To even go beyond the disciplines that are helpful, that are out there in some of the programs that prevent them from going back, to go beyond those disciplines to freedom and maturity and fruitfulness. And so I've been doing research, and there's some great resources out there. We have a sister church doing this very thing already. Uh, there's other things. I can talk to you more about that. I, I want to do it because I think God's going to bring a harvest in. It'll be messy. The, the stall's going to be messy when this happens. But there'll be a harvest. But I need your help. I can't do it. And God has saw fit to take away a very qualified, gifted family who probably would have made this happen. I don't know all the reasons why, but I wonder maybe it's part of it to say, King of Grace, you as a church need to think about what you need to do to make this happen. And perhaps it's an opportunity for some of us who are not elders, but gifted, deacons perhaps, but not necessarily deacons, to step up and make it happen. Now, I recognize in saying that many of you are already involved. And I'm not calling you to overburden yourselves and to kill yourselves for it. But there's some of us who have gifts and are not fully engaged in some way. And I would trust that God is calling you to step up in some way, to maybe take a step towards greater leadership in some way, to serve. To serve in in this way, to help us bring in the harvest, to, to free me up and free our future elders up to serve in the Word. I I am praying, and I don't want you guys to feel burdened by this in a way that's not from God. I'm not seeking to make any of you feel guilty per se. Uh, I want ultimately the Lord's will. I want Him to work in us and through us. I am praying that God would would teach us and grow us in this way. And I feel like we already do very well. So, So I don't want you to think like I'm thinking, you know, we're poor in this. I think we're pretty good, but I think we can do better. And oh, I would love to see the Lord raise up uh an administrator. We need, a, we need an admin assistant right now. And, and thank God for the responses I've already received. We need help in administration. What I would give for a team, and I know there's already those who are serving so well, but a team that, that, that their call is to care for this building. That they see the care of this building as their gift and as worship that enables us to be freed up in our gifts to serve. I'd love to see, I know we need more ushers. There's, there's just so many ways to serve. And I don't want you to do it because, you know, you feel guilty. But you feel the call of God and you see the, the beauty of Acts 6, 1 through 7. What happens when the church is the church. And how, how those, when we operate it all in our gifts, those, each of us are freed up to operate in our calling and gifts. And there's fruit. And, and, and your pastor and, 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 Lord willing, elders together are freed up to minister the word. That everyone would have its part if the bank could come up as we close. That each one of us could serve. And that the word would increase and produce fruit. And many disciples would be added to the church. The disciples would be multiplied greatly and the unlikely would come to faith. I know, I know that's your heart. Act 6 calls us to this. 
to be the church, to work together, to see God's purposes realized. Let's pray. God, I ask you to to come and work in us. I ask you, Spirit of God, would you come and work in your people? Lord, I don't want a guilty response. I don't want anybody here feeling guilty. I want us to hear you. I want fresh faith for what you're doing and what you're planning to do. Lord, I I believe you have plans to work and to strengthen us as a church and to, to strengthen us in our present ministries and to lead us in other outreach ministries. I believe you have these things. But Lord, would you stir us up in faith in you to step out and to serve, to do it wisely, to do it in faith, Would you free us, Lord, in our different gifts to serve effectively and efficiently? Would the word increase? Would disciples be strengthened here and added? Would the unlikely come in by the droves? Would you give us wisdom in that? Would you lead us on? Would you be glorified, our God, in all these things we ask? Amen. Amen.